So Australian superannuation in particular is highly, highly exposed to fossil fuels. And when you're talking that a lot of these funds have hundreds of billions of dollars under management, it's not like overnight you could decide, oh, hey, you know, actually, we think the market's teetering a bit now. Let's take our money out. For some of these funds to divest, it might take anywhere between five and 10 years. And the fact that they haven't started that journey is, is I think, really alarming. everyone. This is People Building Businesses, the podcast from YBF Ventures. YBF's mission is to help startups to scale, scale-ups to succeed, and corporates to innovate. Find out more at ybfventures.com. Today, I'll be talking to an incredibly impressive entrepreneur, uh, business person, and all-around social uh, champion, uh, the co-founder and CEO of Verve Super, Christina Hobbs. Verve is Australia's first ethical super fund for women, led by women. Christina has had a remarkable career to date with social impact at the heart of almost every role she's taken up. We'll get to her story really, really shortly. Like all podcasts, we'd love you to subscribe and to rate us. Uh, We've got lots of great episodes to listen back on with the likes of Ali Watson, Ruth Hendricks, Sharon Taylor, Dom Pym, and many more. So please subscribe and tune in. Okay, let's get to Christina. Christina, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I, I'd love to learn a bit about you be- before we jump into your career, because you've had such a diverse career, um, you know, running for Senate uh, back in 2015, 2016, um, working with the WWF. Uh, but before all that, what was your background? Where did you grow up? So I grew up in Canberra, which was a beautiful place to grow up. Um, very free, easygoing childhood. Um, no matter where you live in Canberra, you can normally be within in bushland within about 10 minutes walk. So I think that really formed my early years. And what about growing up? Uh, did your parents, were your parents entrepreneurs like, like you are today or did they have more, have more traditional careers or... No, absolutely not. I think Canberra has to be, um, and I apologise for any of my Canberra, any of the Canberran <laughs> listeners, but it's probably one of the least innovative places in Australia, and that's because such a large um, number of Canberrans work for the public service. So um, it's not uncommon when you go to dinner parties in Canberra for people to literally be talking about their superannuation. And um, my parents very much aspired, um, their dreams for all of their children were to have solid public service jobs, being paid good superannuation for children to have a house, maybe one day a holiday house at the South Coast. And that was really what they had hoped and dreamed for us. And unfortunately, I'm one of four and we've all gone off and done crazy things. And my mother just thinks she's completely failed in life and fails all the time. Was this like a rebellious thing in response to where you grew up to or well, something it's, else? It's really interesting because my both my parents are from overseas and, and my mum had like left her small Austrian village when she was young and travelled all over the world. And I actually ended up living in Kathmandu, Nepal, for three years and we realised that we'd both got lost on the same mountain pass 25 years apart and got caught in a snowstorm. And so she has it within her, but I think it's something about Canberra that can dial you down a little bit if you're not surrounded by other innovative and entrepreneurial people. 
Okay, and and so you, you grew up and you studied uh, at the ANU, you studied science, accounting, uh, economics, um, and then you went on to the UK to study a master's in finance and economic policy. Uh, any insights to be gleaned from your time in university? Seems like a, a big you know jump from from Australia to the UK and back again. Yeah, there was actually a bit of a gap between those two studies. So I started off studying psychology at uni, which I think was the right thing to do because it was what I was passionate about and really interested in. Um, but then when I started thinking about what jobs I'd want in the sector, um, the jobs weren't really inspiring to me, but I picked up a couple of business units and really liked that. So I ended up doing a double degree at the ANU, which was great. And then it was really almost by accident. I like, hadn't been particularly inspired or hadn't really been thinking much about what I wanted to do after uni. And I heard somebody come from one of the big management consulting firms and talk to us about management consulting. And that just really appealed to me, the idea of being able to solve problems, um, you know, shifting between different companies. And so I went off and, and started my career as a management consultant in Sydney after uni. With Deloitte, is that right? Yeah, it was with Deloitte. Yeah, fantastic. So. And what was your experience like there? You were there for about maybe three years, I think. And uh, was it an eye-opening experience for you being in the management consulting world? It was certainly really eye-opening. Um, it was a really fantastic experience, I think. Um, as much as I used to complain about anything and everything when I was a grad, I think looking back, um, you know, I think big, large companies in Australia have really done a lot to get their workplace cultures right. And I think it was a wonderful culture. I learned so much in that role. Um, absolutely had a great time. It was just that after about two and a half years, suddenly I had the feeling of what the hell am I doing here? And it was one day sort of piling through mud and place with about a thousand other people when I was in a suit and getting up into an elevator and with about, you know, 20 other people and then landing on this open plan work floor and seeing hundreds of people all in suits at their laptops and I basically had a panic attack and um, oh, wow. decided that something needed to change. So what happened after that, after you had that panic attack and did you decide to completely rethink your career? Yeah, I think what I realised that um, as much as I was really good at my job and I did enjoy a lot of it, it just I wasn't able to be my authentic self. So I think being in a suit every day and putting on a persona, which isn't my natural state, was really hard for me. And I think also I just had lost a bit of inspiration with the work. So I was never motivated by making myself lots of money or making the likes of Commonwealth Bank or NAB lots more money. Um, and so it was actually yeah, going to Kathmandu as a tourist and, and then apparently I told the friend I was with one day, I saw a UN cargo passed and said, oh, I'd love to come here and work for the UN. And remarkably a year later, um, an opportunity came up and I found myself in Nepal working for the UN. Okay, that's, that's amazing. This is exactly when you got lost in the snowstorm or was this Yeah, a that was trip? that trip. <laughs> so, a bit before that, I think, but yeah. <laughs> Did you both get, you and your mom obviously got out of it okay, but uh, you know, it must, yeah, be, must be a funny yeah, coincidence. Her, her story is a bit more traumatic than mine, but yeah, <laughs> we both got out. So. Okay, awesome. So um, we love doing research here. So it, it looks like after you left Deloitte, uh, you've held various roles in uh, strategy and, and you know programs uh, with the World Food Program. Was that your role after Deloitte? Yeah, so I was really lucky to get a position in an Australian-funded um, program that's still ongoing. It was called Youth Ambassadors for Development. I think now it's called something else. But it essentially provided um, young people or youngish people with a little bit of experience, um, the opportunity to spend a year overseas um, with an international organisation. 
And so I went over as an economist and it was in 2008, there was a high, what was called a high food price crisis. Most of us wouldn't remember it anymore, Mm. but the price of rice and other basic commodities had gone up and the UN basically wanted to understand or better um, understand the impacts on the most vulnerable. So that's what I initially went over to do and thought this will be a really interesting one year of my life and I'll soon be back in Australia, but it sort of ended up extending for another another decade. Oh, wow. So you were in Nepal for, for the whole decade. So I did um, three years in Nepal. And then what happened was that I actually entered the humanitarian industry. So the World Food Program is the largest humanitarian organization in the world. And I started at a time when the entire industry was shifting from giving people things. So giving people blankets or food or tents when an emergency strikes to giving people cash. So allowing people to make their own decisions, which has been a fantastic transformation because it means that, you know, somebody with a critical illness can use their money to buy medication instead of receiving 10 items of clothing. Um, But the industry that I worked for, it was full of largely men who were logisticians. So, Guys that were experts are getting big trucks from X to Z, often through um, difficult terrain or through conflict settings. Um, But they weren't experts at setting up um, financial systems in those those places. So um, I ended up shifting towards that and then working in a number of conflicts. So all the large sort of conflicts and humanitarian emergencies of our time, setting up um, what were some of the first cash emergency cash transfer projects? Wow, that's incredible. Was it a big culture shock for you going from from working at a place like Deloitte to then working on on such really critical issues with the UN? What was it? What was the experience like? You know, there must be a stark contrast, surely. Yeah, like it was a huge cultural shock, and yeah. there was the environmental cultural shock of some of the places you're living, but also the organisational cultural shock where. Um, even the concept of culture in an international organisation is really interesting because you have um, you adapt some of the culture of the country you're in. The organisation itself has its own culture, and then each of those employees are coming to the workplace with a different expectation of of what a workplace should be and how mm. you should interact. So it's this huge clash and almost quite rogue. So some of the issues around um, sexual harassment and bullying where I think we've made quite a lot of advancement in Australia in that international um, arena were miles and miles behind. And so there was a lot of these um, these sort of really basic things that I was struggling with um, from an organisational um, perspective that I hadn't really thought about much in Australia. And where does this, like, uh, where, where does this passion for, for doing something good for the world come from? Um, was it something innate in you, do you think? Or was it something that was na- nature versus nurture? Mm. Um, I think it's think something that's inside everyone. And, and it's really interesting because I think if you look at Australia now where the expectation is that after university you should be able to get a decent job and, and most people um, have employment. Um, if you look at young people today, most young people want a job that is fulfilling. And I think it's why so many startups today either have a social mission at their cause or try to bring one in, even if it's a little bit of a, um, a, little bit of a sideways um, kind of thing. Um, it's why Facebook doesn't go out there telling its staff that, you know, you know our, we see ourselves as a data organisation and, and our role is to capture as much data and, and use that for, for selling and marketing purposes as possible. Right. They go out and say, you know, we want to connect the world and bring people together and... Um, because I think it is innate in all of us. But I I think this is probably where growing up in Canberra does have some benefits because um, when so many people are involved in the public service, um, anyone who's employed in the public service, it is a a place where you're there to serve. And 
Um, in some ways, you're forgoing a greater salary in order to do something that's for the general general public. Uh, going forward, this is this is another interesting question as a, as a lead on to what you just said. How much? What role do private organizations play in in having uh, a social impact versus an organization like you know WHO mm. or the UN uh, things like that? Because, uh, like you said, a lot of private organizations now are trying to bake in a social mission into into their company. And for a lot of young people who are trying to decide which path they want to go to, it seems like if they commit to one, they kind of pigeonhole themselves in, into either mm. working for a private company or a social organization. Mm. So. What advice would you have for someone trying to make that decision? Yeah, um, I think it's, I mean, I've always sort of pivoted between the two. And I, and I think having private sector experience is really great if, you, if you're even thinking about going into a social um, organisation. And I think vice versa, there can be transferable skills. Um, I think that, like, you know, we, we have to reshape capitalism. We have to reshape corporations. And, and we simply won't have a planet if we don't do it. And so there's a great role um, you know, we, we just have to see that. We have to see companies beginning to think more about their social and environmental impact. Um, but I think on the other hand, we have to be a little bit careful to know where the lines are because um, there's a lot of issues that, you know, even if you look at our organisation, we build the financial power of women. As much as we talk up what we do and try to support women, we have to be really clear that we're not going to see the big changes unless there's policy changes. And I think some of the, the, the issues can be a little bit when um, the public um, expects um, that corporations in themselves can can create all the change that's required when quite often what's needed is is policy change. Right. And um, going back to your, your... So a big part of what you said was giving cash instead of the traditional mm. kind of... Um, uh, supplies like um, housing or whatever it is. Does does this sort of go back to the whole universal basic income argument that you that people are trying to push forward these days? It seems like that's a form of universal basic income in a sense. Yeah, yeah, it is actually. And, and what's really interesting is that there's just so much um, there's so much data and research um, around how having like a basic income can really lift people out of poverty. Right. Like once they can afford clothing, housing, they can look for work. Um, also a lot of research around just, and I've seen this myself, I've just seen people suffer really small shocks. So it might be a natural disaster and it might just be that a family had, let's say one cow or one, one animal and a natural disaster strikes and yep. the animal's killed. And the, the family ends up in, you know, thousands of dollars of debt. They're borrowing money because they're extremely poor at interest rates of 500, 600%. Um, they have to send a child abroad to pay off the debt. Um, you know, like just catastrophic um, impacts on the family because of what, what was a very small loss of asset or a very small shock. And so there's real value in that. And I think what's so fascinating is that all the global, um, you know, the global governments that contribute um, to aid, and Australia is a really big one, um, you know, all reach the same conclusion that on every, on every measure, cash is much better at supporting people. And yet, if you look at what's happening in Australia, the government's moving back towards a, um, a card-based welfare system, which on every single measure we know is going to have worse outcomes. And we're seeing that already. So we see in areas where um, cards have been introduced, so people have to use the cards to buy certain things at shopping centres. We're already seeing a reduced rate in, um, in birth weight in those areas. So um, it's a really interesting dynamic that we know that people having access to basic cash can really lift and improve their lives. This is a bit of a digression from, mm. from the business side of things, yeah. but uh, why do you think the government's taking that, that kind of approach um, despite the data that exists? 
Um, I think it's ideological. Yeah, there's no evidence base for it. Um, and you have to I think you just got to ask what, what's the objective of the program? Um, you know, and I think if your objective is to punish people and assume that by punishing them that they can, you know, lift themselves out of poverty, that's a different thesis to um, we're going to support them and provide them with their basic needs to do it. Sure. Um, and it's the latter that obviously has an evidence base for <laughs> how to do that. Okay. So, so you've, you've spent all this time working with... Uh with organizations like, yeah, like like the UN, and you came back, you found yourself back in Australia, and in 2015, uh, you actually ran as a, as a Senate candidate for for the Greens. Uh, what was the experience like throughout that entire process? It's not something that everyone can say they've done. No, it was a gigantic. Um, it was just a gigantic undertaking, and I think what I've realized about my brain and how my brain works is, um, it's not that I consider risk different to people; it just kicks in a bit later. So I kind of like see all the opportunity and take something on and then it's when I'm too deep into something I'm like oh my god what have I done yeah (laughs) and so that was definitely one of those experiences where um and I hadn't done a lot of media at that point I've since done quite a lot of media but I remember my first um interview and I was with um Dr Di Natale the um head of the Greens and he was introducing me as a candidate and like I'm I'm a relatively confident person and confident public speaker but my like half my face froze like it literally paralyzed and I remember I was standing behind him and I was trying to sort of just do the smiling and nodding thing and I couldn't even (laughs) smile with half my face and I was just like oh my god at some point he's going to stop talking and I'm going to have to just like go forward and speak and like this is just going to be a catastrophe and I hadn't been given any media training at that point it was just remarkable like um, just the idea that somebody, you know, like me, um, who puts their name forward is nominated and then two days later they're in front of the media. So um, I somehow got through that, through that interview. I have no idea what I said. But what I've realised <laughs> as well is that um, that form of non-live television, I think, unless the camera cameramen and all the producers are particularly evil, they do try to just cut together whatever kind of makes sense out of whatever you say. So I think right. there was a lot of creative editing to put together some sentences that made sense out of my mouth. Oh my gosh. And, and yeah. how did the campaign go? Yeah, the campaign went really well. And I think, I mean, the reason I'd come back was because I'd been working in conflict, working in natural disaster, and I was just really passionate about climate change. And I took a year off just to volunteer mm-hmm. and there was just a good opportunity in Canberra where um, there was a senator that's been named by various env- environmental organisations as one of the most destructive um, senators in terms of getting environmental progress or climate progress. Um, he was one of the key people that worked to oust Abbott. And so there was just a real opportunity. Um, the candidate in the election before had got very close. So I felt like there was a real opportunity to um, for the Greens to win that seat. But... Sadly, what happened was that after I was nominated, but before the election, the government actually changed how we elect people to the Senate. Oh, interesting. And I knew before the election then that it was largely unwinnable. Right. And so even this, though this was a policy that the Greens selected, um, it was then an interesting experience to have to go forward with a campaign and project um, that same confidence and... Um, but then also deep down knowing that it was no longer really really going to be a, a good opportunity. Any key takeaways from that? Um, I think what I really learned out of it was at the moment that that legislation was passed, it was obviously really disappointing, but I completely relaxed and began to enjoy an experience that I wasn't enjoying before. And I think in reflection, I actually probably performed better, which made me realise that, um, you know, that that fear of... Um, 
not being successful does really hold us back. And I think I've had a lot more reflection on that since. Okay. So uh, after the campaign, I, I feel like this is sort of touching onto the genesis of, of Verve Super. Uh, so, so what happened after that campaign that led you on the path of eventually starting uh, Verve Super? Yeah, well, I think after that campaign, I realized that I was really passionate about staying in Australia and creating change here. Um, but it was also really interesting time back overseas because I'd been working in, in Syria and Turkey and a project I'd been trying to get a little bit of money for suddenly got funded with a billion euros um, from the EU, which was to provide support to um, Syrians in Turkey because at that time, a whole lot of Syrians were crossing across the border into, into Europe. And so I did go back overseas for about another 18 months um, to roll that project out. So we ended up supporting 3 million wow. Syrians. And then I ended up um, in Iraq for six months, as you do, That's to do another project there. And then, um, you know, there's nothing like sitting in a shipping container inside a military compound um, for six months to make you really question what you're doing with your life. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And at that point, it seemed like a good time to come back to, to Australia. And what had actually happened was that before I'd run for the election, I was doing some climate campaigning with an organisation called 350.org that was trying to get people to move their money out of fossil fuels. And what we realised was that there was no super fund. So you couldn't campaign super funds to move their money out of fossil fuels because there was none that didn't invest in fossil fuels. So there was no, you know, it was ineffective. Um, and so I'd started working with some guys who were setting up the first, this first super fund, um, which, is, which launched about five years ago, and I'd ended up on their board. And over time, being involved in the superannuation industry, I'd also realised really the intersection between um, women's economic inequality and superannuation and had really understood the meaning of the statistic of women retiring with 47% less super than men and, and what that outcome looked like. Um, and so I really felt that it was time that um, we set up a fund that could really devote itself to that. Okay. Before we jump into the fund, mm. uh, I just have a question as well, touching on the work that you've done uh, for the Syrian refugees. And, mm. uh, like, what is the experience like leaving work like that? Because it feels like the, the job is never really done. Um, and you've spent so much of your life and career um, helping out. So what was that like leaving that for, for Verve Super? Yeah, I think... Um, there are some elements of it that have really helped and some that have been hindered. And I think one of the really challenging things about that is that, yeah, you can never do all your work. And um, the stress involved in the decisions of not working on a weekend can be really can be really massive. You know, it's like if you're trying to if you're trying to if you're working on trying to get assistance into like a village that hasn't had a you know, has been blocked off or barricaded for, for four or five months, and you know the situation's really desperate. It's really hard to take a weekend off and say, oh, I'm just going to chill, you know, that yeah. can wait till Monday. And so you do end up just working 24-7 and just having this enormous guilt when you're not working. Um, and a lot of, you know, that really builds up that chronic level of stress. So all the cortisol in your body and then what that does for your health, what it does for your long-term mental health, what it does for even your brain functioning and um, and so I think doing a startup has been really interesting because I get asked all the time, you know, how do you manage the pressures of a startup? And I'm like, this <laughs> Easy. is chill. <laughs> but it is and it isn't because you've got all these other different pressures, like all your life savings being involved in your business. Um, and, and it can be quite, you know, it's really, it is also really, really stressful. Um, but I think what I knew going into this was that um, there's just no point because I know what's going to happen to my body now really well and I know what's going to happen to my brain and I know what's going to happen to my capacity to operate if I do push past a, a particular level. 
And I think anyone who does a startup will learn that over time. And I think if you look at the startup community, um, you can sort of see where people are at in their journey on that. And I've seen people have really physical um, health reactions to that. So one of the people that have, have, have advised me, he's worked in startups in the US and he ended up um, with a face paralysis, oh a permanent one, unlike my, you know, media face paralysis. <laughs> but, you know, and he's now trying to work through that where his immune system started attacking his body and it was purely from the stress. So um, you see people at different parts of this journey and, and being able to manage that in a way that is beyond, you know, meditating and going for a run, but really, really structuring your work and your life um, to ensure that it's long-term sustainable is critical. So I think that was a really good lesson I could take with me. That's incredible advice for, for anyone listening mm. to, to the podcast right now. So so thank you for that. Uh, back to Verve Super, you, you've actually started the company with uh, two other co-founders, uh, Zoe Lamont and Alex Andrews. How did you meet your co-founders? Yeah, so Alex was, um, so she was one of the first employees of the super fund that I was on the board of and she was just brilliant and we'd been talking probably for about five years about the issue of women and super and we had really aligned values and she'd had great experience in the financial services industry but she was also a gender equality campaigner, she'd led a national gender equality campaign so it was almost a non-brainer that we came together and when I decided to go for it she was um, the first person I reached out to. And then Zoe was more interesting because we realised that um, we realised that we wanted this fund to be more than a fund that um, invests in women and, and advocates for women. We wanted to actually support our our members. Um, and for us, we knew that that had to come down to financial coaching because um, we identify this huge gap in the market of women not wanting to access professional advice because they don't trust the industry. So I did this huge research of. I would say I covered like probably a hundred financial coaches targeting to women in Australia and looked at them all and and I was just really disappointed by I guess the messaging. Um, so there was a lot of women who were you know save a thousand dollars and buy a new handbag or um, you know very pink um, websites um, or websites that were really about budgeting like you know how do you budget how do you get out of debt. Um, and it wasn't very aspirational for me um, because I know that some people have issues with budgeting, some have debt, but a lot of women have issues with investing or want to learn to build wealth. Um, and I found Zoe, she'd started an organisation called 10,000 Girls and with government grant money over 10 years had coached 10,000 women. Wow. And it was extremely power, empowering in her language and then the work that she did. But she just closed down the, the, the NGO because the model of um, getting government grant money to run these programs just wasn't sustainable for her because you know she was spending so much money, so much time just trying to get the grant money in. And um, remarkably, her website had been hacked recently, so she'd taken her email address off. So she just had a phone number. And so I just called her one day and I was like, hi, my name's Christina and um, I'm thinking of starting a super fund for women. And she was actually gardening. She was in her rose garden, doing some <laughs> rose gardening at the time. We ended up talking for an hour wow. and she, I was in Canberra at the time and she was in Wagga and she just, she was in by the end of the conversation. She drove to Canberra and um, that was that, became the third co-founder. Oh, that's, that's an incredible story. What were the early days like uh, starting up the fund with the three of you? Yeah, it was really it was really challenging because we actually lived in three different locations and we still do. So I was in I was in Canberra, but now I'm in Melbourne. Um, Alex was in Byron, and Zoe was in Wagga. And we had this inherent belief that okay, if we want to be 
a leading organisation for women, that needs to be start with ultimate flexibility built in at the core because there's a lot of women who are amazing and they live in regional areas. There's a lot of women who are amazing and, um, you know, they want to work or have flexibility to work from home. So we wanted to make this work from the beginning and we knew that if we could make this work as three co-founders, we'd be able to make a really flexible and innovative organisation work in terms of the operating model. Um, but what was really challenging about it was that that was a period of real like norming and storming and or storming and norming and um, we didn't know each other very well at all Um, and so doing a lot of that kind of work without having the face-to-face building up um, rapport and really understanding each other was really hard so we had a we had a few I wouldn't call them blowouts but we had a we had a lot of the first you know even six months was a lot of trying to understand each other's communication styles and, and um, you know, it wasn't easy. It was challenging and also building trust amongst each other. Like, who is this person really? Do they really have the same values as me? But I think that word values was really critical because we all did have the same values at heart and we all had really the same um, positive intention about what we wanted to build and that never wavered and there was never disagreement in that. And I really believe that you can sort out everything else with your founders if you have that. But I've seen a number of founder relationships where they connected at a different level on like strategy or execution, um, you know, but then they just didn't have that core value at the heart and and they separated ultimately because of that. So you think it's values that binds co-founders together? Totally. Like, and it's, I think it's the values and how you apply those values to what you want to build in an organization. And I've seen... For instance, I think what's common in, in, in organisations like ours that have a purpose um, but are also a, um, have a business model as well is that you can, you can get founders where one person is really excited by the business model and making profit and, but doesn't mind the impact side and one person who's there purely for impact and they get along and everything works for a couple of years but then ultimately that strain pulls them apart. And so I think really making some of the same value bases there is really, is really critical. And, and what was your initial plan to differentiate Verf Super from all the other kind of super funds out there? How, how do you start explaining you know, what makes Verve different from the other funds out there? Yeah, so we started in a really broad way and it was we, um, we interviewed and um, surveyed over a thousand women. We pulled together a whole lot of research and we really looked at like what is the universe of this problem? So what are all the things that leads to this gap? And then it was acknowledging, okay, as an enterprise, as a business, what aspects of this can we, can we solve and where is our power? Um, and so the first aspect was around investing. So Australian women, although we are retiring with a lot less, um, we already hold over a trillion dollars of superannuation. So it's an enormous amount of financial power. Um, and we think a lot about consumer power to create change, but we haven't really been thinking about our power in terms of investing. Mm. And so we knew that there was a lot of opportunity to um, impact invest and as a shareholder in companies to put pressure on on companies. So the first part was, okay, let's redefine what it means to to invest in a way that supports women and our communities and our planet. Um, And then the second aspect was, um, okay, we see this huge gap where 97% of financial services companies are led by men. It's considered the least trustworthy, the least ethical industry by women. You've got a situation where survey after survey shows that men prefer to get advice um, through reading and through discussing with their friends and peers. Women prefer to get their financial advice from professionals. And yet the data shows that women are significantly less likely to seek professional advice. So there was just this huge 
issue going on in the market. So the real problem we tried to solve in terms of a market gap was, okay, how do we provide um, guidance and support that sits between um, being able to pick up a book and read it or paying $3,000 for a formal statement of advice? So how do we help people think through making good decisions about their finances and then taking and help and guide them through taking taking those actions without instructing them and telling them specifically what to do? Was it a really intensive process at the start uh, with you and your co-founders to actually be in a room with with um, these female investors and having to then coach them and, and educate them on what you what you said was a, a big gap that has historically existed. Yeah, and I think um, part of um, our approach, which wasn't really that intentional, when I look back on it, I think really makes sense is, you know, we hear a lot about uh, performance marketing, which mm. is a lot about, you know, um, put out 20 Facebook ads, don't evaluate them too much, just see which ones work and then whichever ones work, that's what's working, go for it. Um, don't cut down ideas, don't, you know, just sort of iteratively test. And that was almost our approach to the financial coaching that we've done for our members. So we just sort of started doing things. I mean, it wasn't, you know, I mean, Zoe had 10 years of experience, so it wasn't crazy things. It yeah. was like, okay, here are some things that we know have worked. Um, let's see how they go in a different format, um, for, in a scalable format for our membership. Um, and we're still doing that. So we're still testing um, how people like to be supported, really. And we'll probably be contesting um, for a very long time, I imagine. Okay. For a lot of people, they're not too familiar with how super funds work. So could you just really uh, encapsulate the business model of, of a super fund and perhaps also uh, what differences there are in, in the Verve super world uh, versus traditional super funds in terms of your business model? Yeah, it's a really good question because... Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I think a lot of us, you know, some people you speak to, because it's so related to their employment, they actually think it's something that their employer somehow controls or the government somehow controls. Um, but essentially the model of super is that it is money that you own and essentially it's a fund. It's like as though you're investing in a managed fund or investing in some other fund. You're actually choosing where you want your money invested. Um, there's about 30% of Australians who have signed on to enterprise bargaining agreements and they can't actually deviate their, their super fund um, from those um, agreements um, or the fund that their, salary, that their super's paid into. Um, but for everyone else, um, you are legally allowed to choose your fund and, and that fund's doing a couple of things. So it's investing um, money in a whole lot of different companies and industries um, and then also um, based on which option you choose, you've got different levels of risk um, as you would any other kind, of in, other kind of investment. And then the model of a super fund in terms of a business model is the same um, as any other kind of fund. So you normally have some form of fixed fee and some form of variable fee for managing the, the assets. Right. And um, from my understanding, Verve Super does things differently because you, you have a focus on uh, investing those funds in things that are, are socially beneficial. For example, you've recently made a, a move away from fossil fuels. Is that something that you think more funds are going to be doing going forward? Or is that going to be just grouped to a select number of funds with that mission to, to invest in? Yeah, the fossil fuel thing is crazy. Um, and it's actually really interesting that it's like, it's only my background in the environmental movement that's like made me realize the economics of it yeah. to the degree that I do. So you know, we're one of a handful and I don't think you'd even need your thumb to count them all of funds in Australia um, that don't invest in fossil fuels. So I think there's either three or four of us wow. out of hundreds and hundreds of funds. Um, and it's really interesting with superannuation because there's obviously the ethical argument of do you want your 
do you want your retirement savings um, funding fossil fuel companies? And, you know, you know, for those of us who use keep cups and try to use public transport, like how could we, how are we going to look back and tell generations in 20 years time that in 2020, we were actually still funding these organisations? So I think there's that argument. Um, but beyond that, as a superannuation fund, the ethics isn't good enough. So we have to, we're legally required to invest for profit which means that each time we bring in a divestment screen, whether it's not investing in fossil fuels or not investing in tobacco or gambling, we have to actually be able to argue to the regulator that there's an economic argument for that. We don't have to be right, but we have to have a solid rational argument. So the argument around fossil fuels is pretty alarming. And that's that to stay under two degrees of warming, which is sort of globally recognised as a catastrophic level of warming in which large amounts of um, human society ceases to exist, um, is that we have to keep 80% of existing fossil fuel assets in the ground. So that's not new exploration that's happening every day with the money that we're investing. This right. is, um, we're talking about um, BHP, we're talking about ExxonMobil, um, keeping, we're talking about some of Australia's um, coal seam gas supplies. This is talking about 80% of the assets on their balance sheets having to stay in the ground which means that one way of looking at this is that all of these companies are 80% overvalued. Wow. Um, and these are trillion-dollar industries. And if you look at Australia, where you've got, um, you know, probably around half the, the ASX is either resources or banks, which are heavily exposed to resources, um, this is a really major issue if you're not taking this into consideration. And so Australian um, superannuation um, in particular is highly highly exposed to fossil fuels right um and when you're talking that a lot of these funds have hundreds of billions of dollars under management it's not like overnight you could decide oh hey you know actually we think the market's teetering a bit now let's let's take our money out um for some of these funds to divest it might take anywhere between five and ten years um, and the fact that they haven't started that journey is, is I think, really alarming. Um, and, and so that's our argument to the regulator. And, of course, the other fund's argument to the regulator is we agree with this thesis, but we think well, we will be able to get out in time. Oh, wow. Um, and so there's a lot of people, a lot of investors now are starting to move their money into ethical funds um, for that financial, for that longer term financial reason. What do you think is going to happen when, when all these funds wake up to that fact and try to get out of it at the same time? Is there going to be a, a massive super spill on effect into the superannuation world? Is Are people going to lose their, their savings overnight? Or Yeah, it's called the so it's called the carbon bubble, a little bit like the tech bubble. Um, so economists are calling it the carbon bubble. It's going to burst at some point. Right. <laughs> Full stop. Yep. Um, yeah, we oh don't know when. So, um, but having said that, um, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this is really interesting because, you know, I, you can start seeing how, how Verve is different from other super funds as well. Uh, one of the other differences that you do is uh, Verve doesn't invest in companies that don't have uh, women on, on the board. What was the general reaction uh, for the business community to, to your decision to do that? Yeah, it was an interesting one because we looked at, okay, what are the other ethical funds doing and, and what do we want to do for our screening? And, and really it was gender was the only area that we didn't see other funds screening on. And so sadly we looked at what could be done and we thought, okay, well, it's reasonable that boards have a third women composition. Let's have a look at that. Sure. Yeah. And our investment team was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> the, the universe would be collapsed by so much that we couldn't argue any financial interest for our members. Right. Um, and so we had to go with this screen of, of, of at least having one woman. 
Um, and yeah, I think there's been an interesting reaction. We've seen some other funds come along and, and do the same. Um, right. We've also seen, um, we've known that divestment's not a great strategy around this because as, as I said, you know, it's not really a very inspiring goal just to have on, only one woman on the board, but remarkably there are a number of con- uh, companies in Australia that don't have any women on their board. Um, and so I think it's about how do we mix that with what we call shareholder activism, which is as a shareholder, um, we can group with other shareholders and raise resolutions at a company's AGM. And um, gender is a great one to do that on because the research really clearly shows that companies that have um, a third of women on their board tend to tend to outperform. And it's not just women, but all forms of diversity. So. Um, yeah, I think it's been I think it's been really really interesting. It was a good thing we could bring in, um, and then also we've also looked at impact investing. So how do we impact invest to actually support um, companies or um, organisations that are actually supporting women as well? Are there any other things that you're planning to bring into Verve to to make a, a further, I guess, dent uh, in the current social constructs or social issues? Yeah, so I think the impact investing side is really exciting. So um, one of the great investments we've just made that's um, based on my background is quite dear to my heart is we've actually worked with World Vision. So um, it's called a Vision Bond um, and it's for microfinance in developing countries. Right. So um, World Vision provides the business support, the training um, for small businesses and they're 87% women. Um, so this might be like small shop owners who want to expand the shop. It might be people that have a couple of cattle and want to buy a couple more. So really small loans we're talking about. Um, and we actually use our members' superannuation for the financing. Oh, right. Um, which is remarkable. So, um, And we were able to do this because um, World Vision have been approved that over a really long time horizon, 97% of these loans have been paid back. And so for us... Um, it's quite an innovative investment, but um, it carries a similar risk profile um, to some more boring investments that we could have made. So right. investing in government bonds or other kind of cash assets. So, um, yeah, so I think that, that side of things. And then, you know, a lot of what we do is just how do we support women better and coming up with innovative ways for that. So we launched a support squad. Um, so we have five people on speed dial for any of our members when they need support. We've got a divorce coach a career wow. coach, a pay negotiator, and what is the fourth one that I've forgotten who's very important? A family um, financial coach. So for people who are really going to have a child, thinking about having their first child or another child and want to rethink their financial structures. So we really looked at what are these points right. when a small intervention or a small amount of support could have a really um, large impact. Yep. And and you mentioned all these uh, all these. So all, all the support you're providing to, to women. Uh, is this part of Verve Academy that you've put together? Could you just quickly explain that to, to the viewers, what Verve Academy is? Yeah, so we launched the Verve Academy. So um, we are a, we're not an industry fund. We're a, we're a, we call ourselves a social enterprise, but we reinvest. Um, we're reinvesting um, at the moment anyway, all of our profits back into um, supporting our members. And so the Verve Academy is a really major way we do that. So... Um, we have different programs being run through the academy and we're still, as I said before, we're still testing actually what our members like and what's working. So a lot of it is getting feedback or ideas from our members. Um, but this ranges from the events that we do um, across Australia. We also do a lot of things um, online. So we also allow our um members to host their own events um, and then we do um, sort of like the online um, 
um, hosting of the events, right, sure. um, which really allows us to scale out into rural and regional areas as well. Um, and then it's also the support squad is part of it, which I mentioned before. So it's really about how do we yeah, support women to make great financial decisions. How, would you, how financially literate would you say the average Australian is? Yeah, I think... Um, <laughs> like not very financial literate and this is not a <laughs> this is not something that's women specific actually i should make the point so on most measured women are actually performing as well as men if not better um but yes i would say quite quite worryingly so when you look at um you know even some of the some of the surveying that the government's done where most australians don't understand what compound interest is wow um yeah. and when you, you know and there's probably even quite a few listeners that are like oh, yeah, well, I've definitely heard of that term. I think I get it. Um, you know, but just the concept of investing money over time and getting interest and how that that compounds. Um, so some of these really basic um, things. And I think if you think about it, I think what's really tragic about it is it's not taught in schools or if it is, it's, you know, Commonwealth Bank giving you a dollar might account. Yeah, sure. um, but it's not taught in schools. And so where does it come from? Well, it comes from either your parents or your peer group. Um, I was really lucky um, because my mum was just super into how she manages her money. She's an amazing budgeter. Um, she actually got me to co-purchase a Northern Territory rail bond with her <laughs> wow. when I was okay. like 14 years old. <laughs> yeah. Like, And if you're a parent and listening, like, I mean, yes, I learned a lesson, but like <laughs> I'd also acquired most of, I think, the $500 I invested from doing like a paper run where I was getting paid like $2 an hour. Oh, so, wow. Like, oh, my gosh. You know, the value of that money to me at the time, have it locked away for five years yeah. was a bit traumatic. But <laughs> You know, I did learn through that the, the you know, I put in $500 and I think I got back 700 or something by the time it came back uh, many years later. But so, you know, I learned a lesson from that. Um, but a lot of people don't don't have that luxury. And so then where do we learn it from? And um, what's interesting is that the research shows that, as I said before, men are a lot more likely to talk about money in their peer group, whereas it's just something that women just generally never talk about in their peer group. So if you're not taught it in school, if you don't discuss it with your friends and you don't learn it from your family, how do we learn these basic skills? Yeah, it's, it's extremely difficult. Um, we've got a few more questions before we wrap up. I, I want to touch on that, that 47% figure that you mentioned earlier, uh, that women have 47% less in their retirement savings compared to men. Why do you think that's the case and what's required to fix that going forward? Yeah, I love this question because the answer is like a lot more simple than people think. Um, it's just that we have a whole, you know, our economy is quite structured and our policies um, that are related to retirement savings are really structured still as though they were set in the 60s where most people live in a nuclear family um, and don't get divorced and share their finances throughout their lives. And that's just not what's happening anymore. Um, and so these systems were never were never designed thinking about women. That was never designed to provide women with an ad adequate retirement saving. And even at a federal level, um, we've got commitments around closing the pay gap, but there's no actual commitment about closing the retirement savings gap. So we haven't actually, as a nation, even reached consensus that this is a bad thing and needs to be resolved. Right. So I think wow. that in itself is a starting point. Mm. Um, and then, you know, we hear why I think this question is so important is that so much of what we read in the media is about okay, like women, you've got this like retirement savings gap of 47%, like, okay, you need to make additional contributions. You need to negotiate your salaries harder. You need to do X, Y, Z. 
And I think the personal things we can do are really important. It's obviously why we do coaching. Um, but we just need some like really um, structural policy changes to achieve this. So the biggest gap is because women take time out of the workforce to care for children and there's no retirement benefit on that care. Right. So straight away, there's a really big one. Um, also, the, the reasoning behind why there's such a big gap around care. So um, the largest determinant of that is, um, so there's the cost of childcare, um, but then the other major determinant is that men don't receive um, the same parental leave policies. So where we really see this gap closing um, is in a lot of European countries where their childcare policy, uh, their, their, their um, parental leave policies um, have a structure that looks like, okay, the primary caregiver takes time out of the workforce, let's say six months. If the secondary caregiver takes, get, takes six months off, we'll give another six months to the primary caregiver. So models that actually encourage both partners to take time out of the workforce. And then you see industries adapting um, to that. Um, you've also got a situation where, which isn't commonly talked about, you know, up until the mid-60s, it was actually illegal for a lot of women to keep their jobs after they got married. So illegal. Wow. And then you look at the women today who are living in poverty. So elderly single women are the fastest cohort of homeless, growing, growing cohort of homeless Australians. You look at who these women are. A lot of these women legally had to give up their job when they got married. They're now dependent on a government pension that's set below the poverty line. So by following the law, they're living in poverty. Yeah. So lifting the pension to above the poverty line is a really important one as well, especially when you still don't have fair workplace um, practices that support women to stay in full-time employment. That's, in, that's an incredible answer. Thank you for that. Like I, I completely didn't even think about how uh, parental leave policies would affect retirement savings until you brought that up. So that mm. was incredibly insightful. Um, I just have one more question for you, and it's kind of broken into two parts. Uh, Part one, what's your advice for companies thinking about reshaping their policies to superannuation? And part two is, what's your what's a similar advice to individuals thinking about their superannuation funds? Yeah, that's a good one. So I think um, in terms of individuals, um, it is, I think, you know, taking half an hour to um, think about what you need in retirement, think where you are and see how you track. Um, you can find great resources on our website, on the Government Money Smart website to do that. Um, that'll give you some peace of mind and just give you a goal. I think if you don't have financial goals, you never achieve them like full stop. So, and you need to be thinking about it yeah, from a younger age. Right. Um, there's great tax benefits um, from topping up your super compared to other forms of investment, but obviously that money is locked away. Um, so just, I think just starting to think about it at a young age is really, is really important. Um, and then I think from the, oh, the other thing you can do is some really basic things like consolidate your super accounts. Like that's one of the biggest things it can take you half an hour to do. Right. Um, if you're, if you've got multiple accounts, you'd be paying multiple insurances, multiple sets of fees, you could be completely eroding your balances. So that's a really quick one to do. Um, I think from the corporate side, I think there's two aspects. I think, um, so something that we actually do is that we pause fees when our members go on parental leave. And our members have to contact us to do that, which is one of the key reasons why we do it. And when they contact us, we actually ask them, would you like us to contact your employer and ask them to continue paying you super? And we've actually had success with that. Wow. So something that you could do if you are an employer, I mean, it depends on your means as an employer, um, but think about paying people um, superannuation while they're still on carer's leave. 
Um, I think another thing is just thinking about um, flexibility in the workplace and um, I think a lot of organisations are thinking about how they can keep and support women or primary caregivers back in but that is really the main the main thing that we can be doing. That's fantastic, Christina. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. If someone wanted to learn more about Verve or you know, move their superannuation to, to Verve, what should they do? Um, just head to vervesuper.com.au. It is a two-minute process to move your super. It's remarkably quick. Or you can um, join us on Instagram as well and continue the conversation there. Mm-hmm.